Hi, and thanks for listening to La Jolla Presbyterian Church's sermon podcast for Sunday, April 3rd, 2016. This morning, Reverend Scott Mitchell is starting a new sermon series titled The Story of the Early Church. The series is an eight-week study of the book of Acts. We're starting at the very beginning of Acts with Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Scott's sermon is titled, Waiting. Please listen after the sermon for a few announcements. You can also learn about what's happening at La Jolla Prez by visiting our website, ljpress.org, or contacting the church office at 858-454-0713. And now, here's Scott with Waiting. Looking this morning at the first chapter of Acts, and I'm um, going to be reading from uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This is the story of the early church, the very beginning of it. Listen 2 and 4, the word of God. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, open up your word to us this day. Bless us by it and guide us as we search the scriptures to hear what you would say to us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by reading further, but in a different book. This is a book called The Orthodox Heretic, and this is about the resurrection. This is by Peter Rollins. There we are. It's a parable. Late that evening, a group of unknown disciples packed their few belongings and left for a distant shore. 
for they could not bear to stay another moment in the place where their Messiah had just been crucified. This is Holy Saturday. Weighed down with sorrow, they left that place, never to return. Instead, they traveled a great distance in search of a land that they could call home. After months of difficult travel, they finally happened upon an isolated area that was ideal for setting up a new community. Here, they found fertile ground, clean water, and a nearby forest from which to harvest material needed to build shelter. So they settled there, founding a community far from Jerusalem, a community where they vowed to keep the memory of Christ alive and live in simplicity, love, and forgiveness, just as he had taught them. <clears throat> the members of this community lived in great solitude for over a hundred years, spending their days reflecting on the life of Jesus and attempting to remain faithful to his ways. And they did all this despite the overwhelming sorrow in their heart. But their isolation was eventually broken when early one morning a small band of missionaries reached the settlement. These missionaries were amazed at the community they found. What was most startling to them was that these people had no knowledge of the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, for they had left Jerusalem before his return from the dead on the third day. Without hesitation, the missionaries gathered together all the community members and recounted what had occurred after the imprisonment and bloody crucifixion of their Lord. That evening, there was a great festival in the camp as people celebrated the news of the missionaries. Yet, as, as night progressed, one of the missionaries noticed that the leader of the community was absent. This bothered the young man, so he set out to look for this respected elder. Eventually, he found the community's leader crouched low in a small hut on the fringe of the village, praying and weeping. Why are you in such sorrow? asked the missionary in amazement. Today is a time for great celebration. It may indeed be a day for great celebration, but this is also a day of sorrow, replied the elder, who remained crouched on the floor. Since the founding of this community, we have followed the ways taught to us by Christ. We pursued his ways faithfully, even though it cost us dearly, and we remained resolute despite the belief that death had defeated him and would one day defeat us also. The elder slowly got to his feet and looked the missionary compassionately in the eyes. Each day, we have forsaken our very lives for him because we judged him wholly worthy of the sacrifice, wholly worthy of our being. But now, following your news, I am concerned that my children and my children's children may follow him not because of his radical life and supreme sacrifice, but selfishly because his sacrifice will ensure their personal salvation and eternal life. With this, the elder turned and left the hut, making his way to the celebrations that could be heard dimly in the distance, leaving the missionary crouched on the floor. You ever notice how it's far easier to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ than to live out the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Jesus understood this trait about humanity, which is probably why he spent 40 days after the resurrection with his disciples before he returned to the Father. It was a period of waiting, but not simply waiting. This morning, a week after Easter, we're going to explore what it means to be a follower of Jesus called to wait in the Lord. 
since these few verses of uh, Acts 1 provide what amounts to an outline of the book of Acts, our waiting will help us discover some of what Jesus plans for us to do next. Acts 1 tells us that Jesus waited in Jerusalem with the disciples after the resurrection. But we also learn that it wasn't simply idle waiting. You know, there's such a thing as passive waiting, and then there's active waiting. We Americans, we are go-getters, we have a can-do spirit, and and we don't like to sit around and, and do nothing. Jesus shows us, however, that there is a time for passive waiting. We We know that from prayer. Be still and know that I am God. Now, there is active prayer as well. Usually when we're desperate, we just pray a lot of words. That's very active. But hopefully we spend some of that time in prayer quietly, passively, waiting to hear God's voice. Yet by the same token, about our salvation, we can often give in to the temptation of passive waiting. By that I mean this. It's as if once we have the assurance that Jesus rose, that the resurrection has occurred, we know we're saved and that our ticket has been punched in heaven and then, you know, we're golden. It's the e-ticket ride and we know it's waiting for us. It's so easy for followers of Jesus to fall into this passive waiting trap. And the consequences can be tragic, if not disastrous for us. Edgar Lee Masters wrote something called Spoon River Anthology, and it was published uh, somewhere between 1914 and 1915, and it contained the imagined words of 244 fictionalized people who were buried in a cemetery in a fictionalized Spoon River area of Illinois. And given the history that Masters personally knew of the towns of Petersburg and Lewiston, Illinois, He fictionalized their names, but he gave voice to the actual people that were buried beneath those gravestones. And this allowed them briefly to tell their story, very often, of how they died. This is George Gray's story of passive waiting. I have studied many times the marble which was chiseled for me, a boat furled with a furled sail at rest in a harbor. In truth, it pictures not my destination, but my life. For love was offered me, and I shrank from its disillusionment. Sorrow knocked at my door, but I was afraid. Ambition called to me, but I dreaded the chances. Yet all the while, I hungered for meaning in my life. And now I know that we must lift the sail and catch the winds of destiny wherever they drive the boat. To put meaning in one's life may end in madness, but life without meaning is the torture of restlessness and vague desire. It is a boat longing for the sea and yet afraid. Friends, if we get nothing else from Easter, let it be this. Christ didn't rise from the grave so that we could huddle in our churches and passively wait until such time as we're called home to heaven. In Christ, the kingdom has come now on earth as it is in heaven, just like the prayer says. Heaven has already started now for the follower of Jesus Christ. It's simply a matter of then discovering what God has called you and I to do actively. 
We are called by Christ not simply to long for the sea, but to get in that boat and trust God. While we see the pitfalls of certain kinds of passive waiting, what about active waiting? Active waiting means many things. In our passage this morning from Acts 1, Jesus brings up four things. The proofs, the kingdom, the Holy Spirit, and the journey. And I'll go through through these things briefly. Uh, Jesus, as we note in verse 2, gives instructions. And really the word is the same as for commands. First, he, he gives them the proofs as he's interacting with them. The evidence that Jesus presented to the disciples that he was still alive after they had seen him die on the cross. Now, we didn't get to see Jesus in person like the disciples. So active waiting for us involves believing the proofs of Jesus' resurrection without the benefit of seeing. And I'm actually not going to spend very much time on this this morning because I I just want to say this. For the skeptics among us and for our own inner skeptic, periodically, when we go through seasons of doubt about things like the the resurrection and the ascension here and even the existence of God, we need to put our proofs of God in perspective. The scientists among us here uh, are aware of relativity theory and quantum theory and string theory and entanglement theory and the the Big Bang theory and, and others. And I would only make this point. If you believe, as I do, that these theories may hold some factual truth to them, and if you believe, as I do, that they, while holding some factual truth, are nonetheless bizarre and outrageous and illogical, then logically speaking, bringing into the conversation the possibility of God's existence and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus is not a stretch. If we can talk calmly about relativity and quantum theory as if these ridiculously weird things, even though they are proven, are logical, then all claims about God's existence are no longer illogical. So we can actively wait for Christ by studying and believing his word, though we haven't yet physically seen Christ. Someday we will meet him in person. The second piece of instruction that Jesus gives about, gives, uh, speaks about during the active waiting period is the kingdom of God. For their part, the disciples want to know if Jesus is going to restore the kingdom of God to Israel, here and now. Is Jesus going to sit on the, ro- the throne where David sat? Are the Romans going to be defeated in the glory days of Israel? Are they going to start again? Jesus fully answered that question in Luke 17 earlier when he said that the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning that with Jesus' arrival, God's kingdom has come on earth. The disciples, though, are really asking this question. Is now the time when Israel will reign and the end times will come? You know, it's probably been done already, but I wish somebody would write a history of the end times beliefs, something that covers the 20 centuries of belief about the end times, uh, how they have changed over the years. We know that Jesus is coming back someday. 
But since he has not yet done so, every generation brews up its own new and improved version of the end times. Certainly, if you were ever to pick a time when the end times would have happened, I, at least looking back, would have thought World War II would have been that time. It's an obvious choice, except that the Lord didn't come. I grew up in the, with the Cold War standard version of the end times. The writer Hal Lindsey was the high priest of prophecy in those days, and he wrote the book, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth. His book was ground zero for Bible prophecy when I was growing up. But then the Cold War faded, and so did the popular current prophecies of the time. And as these humanly fabricated dates for these events came and went, as all of them have since Jesus ascended to the Father, Hal Lindsey's books, the sales of them dropped off. But new prophets rose up, as they always do. When the disciples asked Jesus if now is the time when he will restore the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. I think we just need to hear that. It is not for you to know. So folks, when we see the billboard announcing the year and the day and the time of the Lord's return, Definitely, let's be encouraged that that maybe the Lord is going to come back. However, let's not grab our sleeping bag, our compass, a case of water, and a can of Spam, and go camp out on Mount Hozomim. According to Jesus, we are not to know until it's actually happening. In which case, I have a feeling that we will know. We don't need the predictions. Let's not believe anyone until Jesus clearly tells us. Be encouraged by them, yes. Believe them, no. Well, we've gone through passive waiting and we've moved on to active waiting, but I I want us now to just simply move on to go or going. Jesus instructed his disciples to actively wait for the promised Holy Spirit. And he said that when the Holy Spirit came upon them, They would receive power to become God's witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then the surrounding Judea, and then into the foreign land of Samaria, and then even to the ends of the earth where all the aliens live. These are the instructions, the first instructions, about the reach of the kingdom. And the good news for us is that unlike the disciples, we no longer have to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. We live in the time of the promise. The issue for us is where does God call us to go on our journey? Once the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, Jesus sent them on the journey that we are still ourselves on. Which we'll be talking about more during the upcoming weeks of this sermon series, uh, the story of the early church. But I, I just want to explore a little bit today. Here's the question that has no doubt crossed your mind before. Where is your kingdom territory? That is, if if the disciples were called to be God's witnesses in these far-flung places, where has God called you or me? And wherever that might be, what has God called you or me to do? You know, when it comes to the church, many of us think we have gifts for which there is no need. 
Maybe you are, you are an inveterate neat Nick. Uh, you have to have everything just right and just so and, and perfect. Uh, the plates have to match the silverware and the cups and, and all of that. It has to be perfect. And you have a gift, though, at least some have told you, for which there is no need, at least not in the kingdom. Until one day, somebody from La Jolla Presbyterian Church calls and says they need someone to make Christmas decorations look perfect. And your name just happened to come up. Oh, and by the way, the deacons absolutely have to have someone who can make a communion table look like that. Suddenly, you have a gift for which there is a need. And you didn't know that that, well, maybe an obsession, had a place in the kingdom, which it does. Or maybe you like to hike. You love God's creation, especially hiking in the back country of San Diego. And you notice that after all of those bad wildfires uh, that burned through, uh, it took a while, but now some of the, those, those burnt-out oak stumps have little oak sprigs coming out. And you look around to the ones that survived, and you realize that's how they grow. And while you play, pay close attention to these things, really it's a gift for which there is no need. Who really cares? That is until you meet some volunteers who are planting new seedlings in the mountains and keeping them clear so that they can sprout. And one of those volunteers goes to a church that plants trees around barren villages across the world as part of their mission camp, a mission trip to rebuild the landscape. Oh, and by the way, can you swing a hammer down in Mexico? Suddenly you have a gift for which there is a need and you realize that there is a need in a lot of places. Friends, if the story of the early church tells us anything, it's that the gifts for, we have gifts for which God will find a need. We just need to allow the Spirit to direct us to where God needs our gift. There's a poem I love by Wendell Berry. He's a Christian farmer and writer. He lives in Kentucky. And it makes me think of how we can use the gifts that God has given to us. And it makes me think also about the perspective that we need as we offer those gifts. Here's a few of the lines. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. I don't know how the Holy Spirit is going to guide you to live out your faith or show you where God needs your gifts. But I leave you with this task today. Every day this week, Consciously, intentionally, practice resurrection. Thank you, Scott, and thank you for listening. Here's some of what's happening around LJPC in the coming weeks. You can find a complete listing on our website at ljpress.org. We just recently completed a year-long reconstruction of the pipe organ, 
We're told that it's now one of the best in San Diego. To celebrate this, we're having an organ rededication concert on Sunday, April 10th at 4 p.m. World-renowned organist Chelsea Chen will be presenting an amazing concert that will put the new organ through its paces. It's a free concert with a free reception afterwards. That's Sunday, April 10th at 4 o'clock. If you want to find out more about our church and what we believe, we are hosting a new member class Saturday, April 9th, 8.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Even if you don't join, it's a great place to get an in-depth picture of what's going on here. Contact Erica Hill at 858-729-5524 or Erica H at ljpress.org for more information. Reverend Steve Beard, the son of our own Stan Beard, is returning to La Jolla Prez for the third annual C.S. Lewis Lecture Series. Steve is an expert on the beloved Christian author and will be sharing some great teaching over three days, Monday, April 18th through Wednesday, April 20th. Monday starts at 6 p.m., Tuesday at 6.30 p.m., and Wednesday morning at 11 a.m. This event is free of charge with a free will offering taken each day. All are welcomed to attend. If you would like more information about these announcements or anything else happening at La Jolla Press, you can find our website at ljpress.org. That's L-J-P-R-E-S dot O-R-G. Or call the church office at 858-454-0713. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day.